You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's impossible to stay friends with someone just thinking about them or just kind of abstractly calling them a friend and never actually getting in contact or asking how they are or sending a note. And so, yeah, showing up is extremely, extremely important. And it is the difference between the kinds of friendships that are actively sustaining through the things that get really difficult in life and friendships that are just kind of friendships in name only and maybe don't alleviate any loneliness you feel or don't make the hard stuff easier. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. You work too hard for your money to let it sit on the sidelines. Fidelity can show you how to demand more from your money every day. Visit fidelity.com slash hermoney to learn more. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I am very excited for our show today. I know that Catherine Tuggle is as well because we really feel like all of you, all of our listeners, wherever in the world you may be, and we have heard from you in many corners of the globe, we feel like you're our friends. We feel like we're all part of this incredible Her Money family. And once a week, we get to connect here on the podcast or anytime on our website and our newsletters in the private Facebook group where I just love to see all of you interacting with one another. And the point is, I'm connected to you, you're connected to me and our whole team. And if we didn't already appreciate just how important these meaningful connections are in our lives, the last six months or so have really shown us. We have all been through this incredibly long period, it seems, of not being able to see many of our friends, to hug our friends, to celebrate birthdays and milestones. It's been rough. It's been difficult because these connections in our lives are so incredibly important. Over the weekend, I was thinking about the show and how excited I was for this conversation. And I started thinking about all the meaningful relationships in my life. Truly, they are what make your life rich. It's not money, it's not fame, it's not power, it's love, it's friendship, it's all of those things. And on that note, when's the last time you called your girlfriend? And when is the last time you listened to the long-running Call Your Girlfriend podcast? Today, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Aminatu So and Anne Friedman, the authors of that incredible podcast. Actually, they're the hosts of that incredible podcast, but they're the authors of a new book. It is a memoir called Big Friendship, which has landed on all the major bestseller lists, the Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, and it details Aminatu's and Anne's interracial best friendship over the course of a decade. It dives deep into the progress and the pitfalls, the strain, the deep satisfaction, and it also looks at how our society as a whole values friendship, or as the case may be, maybe undervalues it. Aminatu and Anne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. So let's start by talking about the book. 
because you're both writers, you're essayists, you're journalists. This is your first book. What was it like to dive into a project like this together? And Anne, you got here first, so I'm going to start with you. Well, as you say, neither of us have written a book before, so we don't have a whole lot to compare it to. Um, I certainly don't. But I will say that there were many times during this process where I was very, very grateful to be doing it with a friend and with a friend whose judgment I respect so, so deeply. Because, um, yes, there is the writing process, and that is one huge aspect of writing a book. But it really is a bigger kind of collaboration than that that we have. You know, we've we've really together muddled through a lot of these other questions that come up when you write and publish a book together. You know, how do we want it portrayed? How do we want to talk about it? What is the strategy for talking about it? How are we going to do the budget? How are we going to, you know, all of these aspects um, are things that we got to work through together. And, you know, for myself, I know when I go on to write another book on my own, I, um, I, there are many parts of this process where I'm going to miss having, um, having a collaborator. Aminatu, for you, how has it been? Um, I mean, you'll be unsurprised to know uh, <laughs> a lot of the same feelings are cropping up for me. You know, I um, writing a book is a really long, tedious, and very lonely process. And so I am just really grateful that I got to do it with someone else. I think that having that, um, you know, both a level of creative input and also just um, someone else to talk through admin or budgets or, um, you know, really strategy or, um, you know, someone to bounce ideas off of was really invaluable. And I think that we have been really lucky in our collaboration to work on a couple of different things. And there was no way that we could have written this book without the years of experience from doing other things that we had done together. How'd the two of you meet? We met at a TV viewing party in Washington, D.C. in 2009, where a mutual friend who had met each of us separately decided that we needed to be friends with each other and kind of engineered um, a little, a minor social event where we could hang out and meet each other. What was it about each other and that made them so sure that you were a fit? I don't know. I mean, this mutual friend is really just kind of great at identifying a general energy or what, I don't know. I mean, I mean, she did not arrive with any specific endorsements and say like, you will get along because you share the same beliefs about X or whatever. I think it was bigger and deeper and more mysterious than that. Like she just knew we would have this connection. I mean, and it did feel that way. The, the night that we met, it was very much, um, was very much like all I wanted to do was listen to what Aminatu had to say about everything. Aminatu, why did you guys decide to um, take it beyond that, to collaborate, to team up, to start the podcast, to, you know, become the poster children for friendship? <laughs> I mean, when you put it that way, I think a lot of things happened before we ever even started collaborating with each other that was just a really deep mutual understanding that we were going to be a support system for each other. And I think that without even really articulating that, we just started falling into the motions of, you know, being a duo and being really committed to each other and being committed to our friendship. And um, we are also two people who really crave some sort of structure, 
Um, you know, we write in the book that we are, from the beginning, we were obsessed with each other's brains. And so it was very natural that um, we started to gravitate towards um, collaborating because we were really, I think, in some way looking for a really structured way to spend time together. Mm-hmm. And we were really lucky that that happened naturally. It's also true that for a really long time, we collaborated on projects that were not um, any kind of professional endeavor. None of them were monetized. It was never work. Um, but it was really, I think, I think in doing that, we showed each other that, oh, we could commit day in and day out to showing up to do something, which I think is the consistency is probably the um the the reason that our collaboration worked so well when we decided to take it up to the next level. But I will say that for us, it did happen like fairly organically. It strikes me that that is a really good definition for friendship, the consistency to show up for each other. Is that what friendship means to you? We do talk a lot about how it's impossible to stay friends with someone just thinking about them or just kind of abstractly calling them a friend and never actually getting in contact or asking how they are or sending a note. And so, yeah, showing up is extremely, extremely important. And it is the difference between the kinds of friendships that are actively sustaining through the things that get really difficult in life and friendships that are just kind of friendships in name only and maybe um, maybe don't alleviate any loneliness you feel or don't make the hard stuff easier. In the book, you talk a lot about how society undervalues friendship. Can you talk a little bit, Aminatu, about why you think that is? I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that, um, and mainly they're they're all mostly cultural. You know, we live in a society that, by and large, still is very much a world that is driven by patriarchal and capitalist ideals, and so. Um, you know, this idea that in order to be an adult, you are supposed to be someone who is in um, a successful romantic relationship that then yields some sort of family, I think is one of the biggest reasons that um, we undervalue friendship. There is also just a cultural messaging. I know that I definitely got as a child that friendship is just supposed to be easy. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think you kind of, uh, you know, I don't know that anyone tells you that, but I think that you infer that at a really young age that, oh, yes, like friendship is something that happens really easily on the playground. And, uh, you know, and then you meet people along the way and somehow you just stay friends with them forever. And there was never a real, um, you know, a real teaching or a real understanding that friendships, like all kinds of relationships are work. And um, they're very rewarding relationships, but you also get what you put into them. And so I think that our inability just as a society to, to really say that friendships are deep, important, complicated relationships is a huge part of the reason that they end up being very undervalued. I think what you said about capitalism too struck a chord with me. I, I dug in this morning to um Andrew Ross Sorkin's piece in the New York Times about the 50th anniversary of economist Milton Friedman's seminal essay on shareholder value, which, you know, in a nutshell said, 
it is the job of companies to make money for their shareholders and very, very little else. And that was sort of a defining moment in make money, make money, make money, make money. And I, I do think that these things are at odds, that when we put all of our time or so much time into work, it leaves little time for other important things, including important friendships. Right. And that's those of us who are choosing to put a lot of time into work. I think, you know, the vast majority of people don't really have a choice about the extreme number of hours that they work to make ends meet. And it Mm -hmm. is true that the way all sorts of other things are structured in our society, the way that we put the burden for caregiving on individuals and individual families, um, all of these things are really making it more difficult to make the time for for friends. And and then if you couple that with um, friendship being not valued as much as work or as much as traditional family, you have a real recipe for, hey, just let those friendships slide. Like you don't have much time anyway. It's fine. They'll understand. If it's not going well, just abandon it. Like all the kinds of things that we see cropping up. So how do you push it to the top of the list? I mean, I think that for the both of us, we, um, and even before we knew each other, we had made a choice that um, our friendships were really important and they were a really central part of our well-being. They are a central part of our how we want to build our communities and how really we want to build the society that we work in. And so, you know, I think that Anne's point about having all of these competing interests and not enough time is very, very, very real. And I think that um, it is a burden that pretty much like every individual in America will struggle with. But I think that even just reframing, you know, like a mindset to say, oh, actually, like, I will not let my friendship slide. Like, it's true that I don't have enough time and, and that there are all these other competing interests, but friendship is central and important to me. We say over and over again, you know, that Um, this problem of how do you spend more time with your friends is not one that you can solve alone. It's a conversation that you need to be actively having with your friends. Because, um, you know, if you were feeling crunched about all of the responsibilities that you have, it is also true that the people that you are trying to be in relationships with have those same constraints in their lives, even if they manifest differently. But I think that the first thing that we need to do as really as a culture and as a society is say that friendships are really important and that they're central to a lot of people's lives and that they will now be also really in consideration when we think about how we want to organize the society we live in. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. It has to be a conversation where everybody, or at least the people in that relationship, decide that this is going to be a point of important focus. I want to dig in more to friendship in the time of pandemic and also into the conversation about race that we are having in this country right now. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. It's no secret that women are on a different financial journey than men. So it's important to plan for those differences while thinking about retirement, social security, investing, and more. Fidelity can help. They're taking steps to help women demand more from their money because you've worked way too hard to get where you are to keep your money on the sidelines. So get the skills and the investment advice that you need to put it to work for you. Visit fidelity.com slash her money 
to learn more. I am talking with Aminatu So and Ann Friedman, authors of the New York Times bestselling book, Big Friendship, and hosts of the long-running, excellent podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. So let's start with this conversation, this important conversation that we are having on race in this country at this time. Have you both ever had to deal with any surprises, any feedback, any judgment, positive or negative, about your interracial friendship? And I'll start with you again. Well, I just want to start um, with kind of part of the premise of your question about when and how this conversation about race is happening, because I think for us, it has been an ongoing one that definitely does not feel new in um, spring and summer 2020. And um, I don't I don't say that to say like, oh, haha, we've been here or like something braggy like that. But I think it is. Um, but I do think it is a reality of life for black and brown people in America that race is something that they are confronted with and talk about and think about all mm-hmm. the time. And I think that part of being in close friendship or close relationship with people of color, if you are white, is developing a muscle to join those conversations and ideally start to lead them and initiate them. And so the parts of our book that are about the fact that we are women of two different races, Aminatu is black and I am white, you know, that part of our book was something that we worked on for years before George Floyd was murdered and before this latest round of protests. And so I think that that is a really important place to start because I think it highlights the ways that race and racism have been present for some people and not for others. Um, I also think for me, through the process of writing about race as it relates to our friendship specifically, I'm still very, very ignorant about the way race plays out in everyday interactions. I have really been reminded that it is a responsibility to be paying attention and looking for that and kind of initiating conversations about it. And um, I also think, and this is something we write in the book, that it's unavoidable, you know? I mean, and this is another reason why I think we resist talking about it in terms of this moment. It is a really big and deep and ongoing issue, not just Mm -hmm. in kind of like American history or our politics, but in our interpersonal relationships and the way we construct our friendships and our families. And I really think that, you know, we're hoping to, with our book, normalize the way that some of those conversations can happen within friendship and really reckon with the ways that friends of different races might be affected differently by how those conversations come up. Point taken, absolutely, about about the question. So as somebody, as two women who've been having these conversations for years, from a tactical perspective... I do think, and this is something that we've visited a lot recently, I do think there is uncertainty, particularly among white women, about how do we start these conversations? How do we use that muscle? Can you share with us how you strengthen that muscle in yourself? I mean, I really would refer people to this chapter because it is not only about a white perspective of interracial friendship. I think understanding in some ways that this way that like white people experience race in an interracial friendship and also in the world is just vastly, vastly different from 
the way people of other races and backgrounds are experiencing it. And so that is one starting point, just recognizing that like, hey, because something doesn't feel like a big deal to you, doesn't mean it's not a big deal or doesn't mean it's not happening. I think for me, I have been very eager all the time to write off something that is really rooted in race as an incident that just has to do with like an interpersonal dispute or, you know, it's specific to the two people and their personalities and not kind of acknowledge the way that race has come into play to really define that interaction, which is something that I think is much more apparent to Aminatu in many cases, for example. And so, you know, I think one thing is like letting go of my own, you know, sometimes it's my genuine perspective and some things, sometimes I think it's just a desire to believe that race is not touching relationships or situations where, where it in fact is at play. So that's one thing I think is really normalizing this idea that like there are not deracialized experiences. It's not like only when I'm in conversation with a friend who's black is that race is happening. You know, race is happening right now in a conversation between you and me, two white women, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that that is a starting point. I think that there are um, lots and books, lots of books and resources that people have shared um, in this moment of reckoning that can kind of help you start to think about the ways that race is playing out. But but when it comes to the interpersonal interaction, I think that I will not claim to be really great at it all the time. But I will I will say that I am very much trying to recognize closer to real time, as close to real time as I can when race is coming into play and something that's happening for me. And I think that also involves some really hard work about, you know, the advantages that I have had um, Mm -hmm. due to due to my race. And it doesn't mean rewriting my narrative about having worked hard or questioning whether my friendships were real friendships. But I think a little bit of hindsight can be helpful. You know, we know I know now more than I did (laughs) a year ago or three years ago. And I think that is true for a lot of people who are, who are cluing into this conversation now and being willing to examine um, some past behaviors and maybe even raise the question, you know, if, if with people who are close to you, I mean, the process of writing this chapter about race meant that Aminatu and I had to talk very specifically about things that we had maybe both experienced as unpleasantries in our friendship, but for me, that's where it ended. I was like, this was a conflict between the two of us in some cases. And and in those situations, Aminatu had to say, well, actually, I'm going to have to spell it out for you why this is about race for me. And and part of this process is also me acknowledging that that takes an extreme amount of work and self-sacrifice and often pain on her part. And so being able to express gratitude for that and not take it lightly when she is extending herself and going out of her way to clue me in about what's really happening in our friendship, I think is is probably the most accurate way to put it. Those are all some of the skills that I am working on. Aminatu, what was working on that chapter like for you? And and by the way, everybody listening is going to pick it up and read it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think it required something different from me, which was very much, um, you know, uh, having to both, um, you know, toe the line between telling my own story and my own experiences and essentially like educating a lot of white people into what it is like to be a black friend in a relationship between a black person and a white person. And, um, 
And some of that education is very low level and it's easy and, you know, it's a very rote kind of thing. And I think that some of those experiences are also very painful to talk about. And so, but I I think I have been really um, heartened that the response um, from this chapter from a lot of um, people who are the not white friend in their interracial friendships um, found that a lot of those experiences were similar for them. And so I think that the more we have these conversations and the more we normalize them, the better it is, you know, but I, I really want to echo a lot of Anne's points because I think that there is always this assumption that, um, you know, race is only happening when a not white person is involved. But the truth is that a conversation between two white people, like the one mm-hmm. that you just had, was actually very much about a racial dynamic, you know, and understanding that if you are friend circle is all white or you um you know predominantly work with white people or your family is entirely white or your neighborhood or the school that you send your kids to those are also choices that are that are choices that are very racialized you know and that it is not um that whiteness is not an absence of race there is very much a participation in this conversation that's happening whether people are acknowledging it or not and you know, and I think that what we are really trying to say is that, um, of course, like there are a lot of topics that are very fraught, but I think that it is a huge cop out when white people decide that talking about race is difficult. I don't see how it is more difficult than talking about your gender. If you are a woman who is in a heterosexual relationship, I don't see how it is different than talking to um, the people in your life who just are very different than you are or different in a, in a particular way. So I think that not falling to that cop out is probably uh, really important. And also like everything, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And I think that always understanding that, um, you know, the lived experiences of people that you are having intimate relationships with, when, no matter what those lived experiences are, are important for you to understand if you are going to have intimate relationships with them at all. You know, so if you are not having this conversation with the Black people in your life, I think a good question to ask yourself is actually how close am I to the people in my life, you know, and how close would they say that we are? Because it is one thing to claim someone as a friend and entirely different to do the work of being someone's friend. And I think that that is also worth remembering. When you uh, said the more you do it, the easier it gets, it just struck a chord with me. That's what we say about talking about money on this show. People don't like to do it, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. I know we're going to wrap up here. And I wanted to just ask, you know, we are in the middle of this pandemic that who knows when we're going to be back to connecting in the way that we normally do. Can you each share one thing, one suggestion for keeping our friendships strong in this time where connecting in and of itself is more difficult than usual? Oh, I don't know if this is a tip or a strategy, but I um, I have really found myself doing non-time synced kind of like non, like we're not at the phone on, on the phone at the same time or on FaceTime at the same time, but we are going to trade audio messages or we are going to send each other letters. Like those are the kinds of communication that have been really helpful for me, especially as this thing wears on and Zoom fatigue really sets in. Rather than saying like, hey, we're both going to commit to sitting down in front of the computer at the same time, just checking in when one of you has time and then that other person can listen and reply when they have time. It also works great if you're in different time zones, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to find that exact right time to connect. 
so yeah, so that would be my big tip is doesn't have to be a, a date at the same time in the same app, but finding a way to do that connection without the, the constraints of, of yeah. time and scheduling. I love that asynchronous communication. Thank you. That's a two word way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not too. Yeah, you'll not be surprised to hear that is also working for me. You know, I will say my my one actual strategy is to get a little bit vulnerable and to just tell your friend that you want to find a way to stay connected with them in the pandemic. It sounds, uh, you know, for some people that's easy. And for others of us, we want to crawl into the ground and it sounds cheesy and weird. But I have to say that, you know, telling someone that you love that you love them and that you're you know we are going through this weird tough global time and you still want to find a way to be in their life is in some ways for me that takes all of the the air out of the the pressure balloon that we're all in and so i think that really um you know getting a little vulnerable and getting intentional and and saying what it is that you, what people, the people in your life mean to you and how you would like to be connected to them in the future is really important because again, you know, you can't solve this on your own. Um, finding the best way to communicate with someone or finding the right time, you know, or a way that they will appreciate to be thought of is something that you have to be in conversation with them about. So there is really no mystery. Get a little vulnerable and uh, and tell the people in your life that you love them and you want to find a way to stay connected to them. The book is Big Friendship. The podcast is Call Your Girlfriend and Aminatu. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you for, having, for having us. us. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I realized we were about to say that in unison. Thank you for having us. <laughs> us, us. All right. Anytime. Please come back and we will be back with Catherine and your mailbag. And her money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. That was such a great chat. I was so excited to get to talk to them today. Me too. We had Anne on the podcast very, very early in the run, but we've never had Aminatu and she's fantastic. She's such a force. I think our listeners will really enjoy this book. So um, I was excited for it as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, there is no better time to talk about friendship and connection than during this era that we are living through right now. I think too, what they said about you just have to do it really resonated with me. You know, I grew up all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. And I am not the best keeper in touch. My mother is exceptional. I mean, she is just so amazing at maintaining really, really strong connections with people from pretty much every place that we've lived. And you're really good at it. I mean, I've noticed this. You write letters. I do. I do. But I I get joy out of that too. And going back to what you said about your mom, I actually think the ability to keep in touch skips a generation. Really? Because my mom is the worst. <laughs> like at one point I was working like three jobs and like babysitting on the side and blah, blah, blah. And I sent out like a hundred Christmas cards that year. My mom was retired and I was talking to her and I was like, did you get out your Christmas cards? She was like, I just didn't have the time. And I was like, woman, <laughs> if I can do this, you can send out some holiday cheer. So don't feel bad. If your mom was good at it, then that automatically means you're bad at it. Oh, that is really, really funny. All right. Well, I'm not giving myself a pass. I'm, I'm going to do my best. <laughs> 
But it, it is. It's uh, Let me just say a, a belated happy birthday to my friend Kathy. Because I call her inevitably every year on her birthday and forget it's her birthday. I just call her because she's one of my people that I call. And she says, ahem, ahem, you know, I know that you mean to wish me a happy birthday today, but <laughs> it's because I don't track all the birthdays on Facebook. And I just... I recently discovered on the iPhone, you know, in your contacts for people. Yeah. Within the contact, you can actually enter someone's birthday. And when you do that, it automatically populates it on your calendar, on your phone. Oh. So you never miss another birthday as long as you program their birthday into their contact. Okay. I'm going to have to start doing that. Which I find really helpful. I am absolutely going to start doing that. Cool. All right. But if I missed your birthday too, I'm really, really sorry. No, my birthday is on your calendar. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad I didn't miss it. No, no, not at all. You you always get it right. And I have the same birthday as like one of your other friends too, so. So it's it's it should be an easy it's, one. It's there. Okay. All right, good. Good to know. Let's talk about our listeners. Let's answer some questions. Our first question comes to us from Terry. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I'm a longtime listener and fan. I've caught every episode. I'm hoping you can help guide me. Since I was a kid, I knew I would help my parents when they retire. That's the norm slash expectations for first-generation Asian-American kids. I have six younger siblings. We range in age from 30 to 40 and are all at different phases of life. As can be expected, we're also at varying levels of financial independence. With so many variables, I don't think we'll come to an agreement about what should be done when it comes to contributing to my parents' retirement. Our parents are 66 and 63. My mom wants to retire in three years. My dad draws $800 a month in Social Security, and my mom will get about $1,200 a month when she retires. My mom has a 401k that's currently at about $70,000. They don't have any other assets other than a home they own with no mortgage. They have no debts other than a car loan of $10,000. They keep their money separate with each paying different bills or expenses, and they generally live pretty frugally. I think that their Social Security checks would cover the majority of their expenses, However, culturally, I know my parents expect something from us. I don't know how my siblings and I should assist them in a way that's fair to everyone when we may not agree on how much, if any, to contribute. Any guidance would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Ooh, this is a tough one. I think that the very, very best thing you should be able to do is figure out what your parents are expecting. I mean, it's very tough to sit down with your siblings and talk about how much each of you should contribute when you don't even know what you're trying to cover. And there are a number of different ways to go about this. I mean, if your parents believe that they have enough to continue to live on comfortably, maybe you're helping build a savings account, maybe you're contributing to a long-term care insurance policy, There are many different ways to structure this, but I think you have to start with your parents' expectations. And then I just want to come around to the thought that fair and equal are not necessarily the same things. If you and your siblings all have various levels of financial success and various levels of earning. I think it's probably reasonable that you don't contribute the same exact amount to your parents. I also think 
if you can work together, you may be able to come up with some sort of a system that either bases your contribution on a percentage of what you're earning or a percentage of what you have or at the stage in life that you find yourselves. I mean, there's some years in all of our lives where we're able to save more for our own retirements based on the things that we have on our plates. And there's some years where we're able to save less. And if your parents don't really need the money, there's a lot more flexibility in how those flows of funds can stop and start. But I'd start with your parents. You say that you believe there's an expectation. They expect something from you. Try to figure out what that is and then try to solve the problem from there. And Catherine, if you have anything to add here, please jump in because these are, no, these are cultural norms that we're talking about, right? I mean, I'm the oldest girl and the only girl. I'm the oldest child and the only girl in a family of three siblings. I have known for a very, very long time that a lot is on me, not necessarily in terms of providing money, but in terms of of being there to provide support. You're the only child and the only girl, so I'm sure you feel much the same way. But in this family with so many siblings and with this Asian cultural heritage that does have expectations, I'm open for suggestions. Well, it's an interesting question because I feel like on one hand, she's saying that this is kind of a casual, like in our culture, it's expected that we chip in. But then on the other hand, she's talking about it being fair and everyone contributing the same amount. So it's an odd dynamic of something that is just known that must be done. But now we're talking about making sure it's fair. So I think the only way to really look at this is to figure out exactly what the parents need per month or per year. And then the siblings just need to come to the table together and figure out how this is going to work. And I don't think fair is just about money or equitable is just about money. I also think it can be about time, that you may have some siblings who are able to do the running to the doctor's appointments when there is running to be done, to help take care of the home when there is maintenance that is needed, and others who are just for reasons of geography or for reasons of other priorities or other responsibilities, unable to do those things, but maybe they have additional funds that they can kick in. Yeah, exactly. And maybe if the siblings really want to get deep into this, then they come up with a metric for how much your time is worth. So if you're going to be making this doctor's appointment run, then your monthly contribution is going to be X amount less than the rest of us. Exactly. If that sort of measurement is important. And I, I almost hope it isn't. I almost hope we can they can get to the point where everybody is contributing what they're really able to contribute, doing it from a positive place of wanting to help the parents, but not judging each other for being able to not contribute as much money, for example. Right. But just the fact that they're going to talk about it is so important. So many times these things just go unsaid and then resentment builds and then, you know. And then there's surprise and you've got to avoid the surprise. 
Yeah. Avoid the surprise. Maybe that's the main takeaway here. <laughs> All right. Um, I hope that helps. Please let us know what happens because uh, this is a, a learning experience for us as well, yeah. Terry. Yeah, please. We would love to know exactly what you guys do, particularly if you find it successful for the whole family. Our last question comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, Dear Jean, I love listening to your show when I'm taking a break from my day and walking outside. I've been listening since the show's inception, and I'm so grateful for the incredible guests, questions answered in mailbag, and knowledge dropped. It's refreshing to finally have a show aimed at women to help us become more educated and enable us to make smarter financial decisions with our money. As someone in a male-dominated field for the last 13 years, I've seen and experienced the struggle we have as women when it comes to earning our worth. Thank you for what you do. I'm a 34-year-old single woman, sans children, living in Virginia, and have managed to accumulate a current net worth of $550,000 with no credit card debt, student loans paid off, and a car owned outright. Of that, $300,000 is for retirement, half is from my company matched 401k with a 50% match up to 8%, and the other half is from my traditional IRA account, which is managed by my financial advisor for a 1.25% fee paid quarterly. I max out both of these accounts each year. In addition to that, I've socked away another $145,000, which is managed as a non-retirement investment account, also by my financial advisor with the same fee, invested in municipal bonds, and $86,000 in a high-yield savings account, currently earning 1.5%. I'd like to reach financial independence, so I know I need 25 times my annual expenses. Currently, my monthly expenses range from $2,500 to $3,000 a month. I make $140,000 as salary and about $100,000 in commission a year. Financial independence seems like such a long way off. At some point, I would like to leave my high-paying, high-stress job. I wake up every day dreading going to work with my current employer, and I want to trade it in for something else that feeds my soul. Maybe become a teacher with a side hustle of earning passive income from an investment rental property. I'm debating when I should slash can leave my job safely, but I feel selfish for even thinking about it. In a time when over 22 million people are unemployed due to the pandemic, I feel awful for considering leaving this job. I should just be grateful I'm in such a fortunate position and try to stick it out until I reach financial independence, which would be a few more years. I'd also like to make meeting the right person and starting a family more of a priority in my life and have considered spending some of my saved money on freezing my eggs before I hit my 35th birthday this year, which costs as much as $10,000. My question to you, how do I better invest my money and put myself in a better position to leave my current employer and pursue my dreams of falling in love, becoming a teacher, and starting a family? Should I move my non-investment account away from my advisor and invest in an S&P 500 index fund, which has lower fees? Do you think it would make more sense to invest in a home or an investment property where I could earn a passive income from rent? I currently rent an apartment month to month and split the cost with my roommate. Because I've never owned a home, I have some anxiety around buying and going into debt, especially because I work in the tech industry, which can sometimes be prone to layoffs. Any help or suggestions you have would be so appreciated. I'll be tuning in. Thank you. First of all, let me just say, wow. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've done an incredible job, and you're not as far from financial independence based on your definition as you think that you are. I'm just going to run these numbers. So your monthly expenses are $3,000. At the high end, that's $36,000 a year. Um, 
the uh, you've got five hundred and fifty thousand socked away. Um, five fifty divided by thirty six. Can you hear my calculator going in the background there, Catherine? Um, so you're already at 15 years of expenses. Um, and at the rate that you're earning, you're going to get to 25 times your expenses in just a few years. So the question is, what does that mean to you at age 37, age 40? What do you want to do with your life at 40? I think you're putting an extraordinary amount of pressure on yourself to hit these numbers when my guess is that at 40, like many people who are aiming for financial independence, and I know you said you've listened to our shows on the FIRE movement, but go back and listen to them again. What you'll hear is that many of the people who are aiming for these numbers don't stop working at jobs that pay them money. They stop working at jobs that pay them as much money. And if you're willing to get to that number a little more slowly, then I think you can start thinking about different ways to make changes in your life right now. The micro details, the 1.25% that you're paying to that financial advisor, do you have to pay that money? you do not have to pay that money. You could put the money into a portfolio of index funds or ETFs, or you could put it in a target date fund. You could certainly pay less. I don't know if you're getting other services from that advisor about your financial life as a whole that would make that fee worth paying. If you're not, I would say make a change and put that money back in your own pocket. But I do believe, and I think you probably know this, that financial advisors provide holistic advice about our lives that can be really, really helpful, especially as you're looking at something like this. The other thing that I would say is don't wait to start having a life. It sounds like you've been doing that a little bit. It sounds like with the thought about freezing your eggs until you could find the time to have a relationship or find a relationship. If you want to freeze your eggs because you don't have a relationship right now and you're afraid that you won't be able to have children in the future, yes, spend the money. You have it and freeze your eggs. But also take a look at how you're living your life. Take a look at whether you could free up some additional time in your schedule to make some of those meaningful connections that we talked about earlier in this show with Aminatu and Anne, that you've got to give yourself the time to build these relationships and then to nurture these relationships if you want them to be successful. And if that means that you save a little bit less each year, I'm okay with that. If it means that you do go down the road of of finding a job that feeds your soul and simultaneously you have a an investment property with some passive income. I'm okay with that. I just don't want to see you neglecting these things that you so clearly want for longer than is necessary. 
but it, it does involve making some hard choices and, and thinking about if you are willing to put your path toward financial independence on a, a slightly slower path. Does that make sense, Catherine? Yes, and I completely agree. I think it is very clear that she is incredible at prioritization and reaching life's goals, but I think you don't have to do them one at a time, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can be working this job while you're also at home at night scrolling through Bumble and trying to find your person. So I think it's great to have a checklist in life, but if you try and do one thing at a time, I think you're going to be disappointed. Absolutely. But financially, oh my gosh, like she's so A set. rock star. Yes. Yeah. So, you're doing so great. Incredible. Don't, yeah. don't worry about the money. The money is doing just fine. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much, Jean, as always. And in today's Thrive, how to make working from home a permanent arrangement. It has long been predicted that we were heading toward a remote work reality. Technological innovation has enabled us to work anywhere, anytime, and COVID-19 has only accelerated the rate of this shift. Today, 40% of the American workforce is now working remotely. In 2018, and you should remember that was just two years ago, it was 5%. So how are these numbers going to change when offices start opening up again or when we have a vaccine? If you're hoping to make working from home permanent, you should ask for it. And here's how. First, gather and present data that shows how successfully you're performing in the remote reality. Track how many calls you make each day. Track your improved performance. Track how you're saving the company money. All of it. Second, have a plan for the future. Tell your boss exactly how you're going to continue being successful working remotely. Stay focused on the value that you add to the company by being remote. And just remember that when it comes to remote work, many employers fear you're actually just going to be watching Netflix all day. Your job is to put them at ease about your productivity hit your numbers, and make sure you're communicating properly with your manager so they grow more and more comfortable with what a rock star you really can be while working away from the office. Because this all really comes down to trust. Show your employer that they can absolutely trust you no matter where you're based to meet your deliverables. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Amina Tussauds and Ann Friedman for sharing their big friendship with us today and inspiring us all to reach out to our own friends a little more often. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>